Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was a beautiful spring morning in Hull, Quebec on April 26, 1900. The sun was shining, the leaves were emerging on the trees, and birds were chirping to welcome the new season after a long winter. But there was still a chill in the air, causing many to hold on to their winter jackets as they went about their day. Along the shore of Minnow Lake, an unnamed man started a fire in his fireplace to warm up his home just enough before the sun's heat took over. As the fire burned, that fireplace had been used many times throughout the winter, but it was also full of small bits of debris, some of it still flammable. Slowly the fire that was meant to warm the home spread up the chimney and sparks ignited the roof of the home. People walking by thought nothing of it. A chimney fire was not unusual. The fire department would deal with it. The home's roof burned, and some people stopped to watch as the homeowner rushed outside with what he could carry and sparkly embers flew up into the sky and that early morning air. Some spread to the house next door, while others took a longer journey down the road or across the street. As they flew, they sparked more fires, and by the end of the day, cities were in ruins. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. This story begins in the 1800s when Hull, Quebec was founded by Philemon Wright after he immigrated from Boston. The community slowly grew around the timber trade, as did its sister city across the Ottawa River, Ottawa. While Hull would never reach the level of Ottawa's prominence as capital of Canada, it was still an important community in its own right. In 1851, Ezra Butler Eddy, an immigrant from Vermont, arrived in Hull and set up a business making handmade matches, washboards, and clothespins. 
From 1861 to 1871, the French-speaking population of Hull also grew from 420 to 4,461, while the English-speaking population only grew from 3,291 to 3,857 in that same period. By 1890, Eddy's pioneering efforts to establish pulp and paper manufacturing in the city were hugely successful, which made sense that Ottawa stored the lumber while Hull processed it. Fires were also common. The city was mostly built of wood, taking advantage of that ample timber in the area. Major fires occurred in the 1870s, and in 1880, a fire destroyed 500 houses. Then, on May 9, 1886, a fire broke out in Hull and destroyed 110 buildings, including the post office, leaving 200 families homeless. Fourteen years later, in 1900, Hull was a thriving community that was home to many of the civil servants who worked in Ottawa at the various government organizations and departments. Now, a quick note before I continue. If you look at a map today, Hull is the central business district and oldest neighborhood within the city of Gatineau. But for the purpose of this episode, I will only be referring to the municipality itself as Hull. On Thursday, April 26, 1900, people were going about their day. The snow had melted, and the trees were turning green. The temperature rose to 17 degrees Celsius, making it quite nice for late April. The wind was especially strong that morning, gusting at about 50 kilometers per hour. Wind on any normal day is not the cause for alarm, but on that day, it was a recipe for disaster. As that wind blew, it took sparks from a chimney fire two kilometers away and transported it across the city. A fire alarm went off at the nearby fire hall, and the firemen under the direction of Chief Benoit hurried to battle the blaze. By the time they reached the home, a second house and barn were on fire. The firefighters did what they could, but the flames were moving too fast, and the fire was already spreading down the street to several other buildings that surrounded the area. A report later stated that the fire chief stipulated that no water be used on the fire until he arrived. Another rumor stated that pro-Boer sympathizers started the fire. At the time, Canada was involved in the Boer War in South Africa, so tales of spies were not uncommon. Nonetheless, these rumors were unsubstantiated. Meanwhile, the wind carried sparks to buildings across the street. E.B. Eddy, one of Canada's earliest industrialists, said of the sparks, If one could imagine a snowstorm of particles of fire instead of snow, it would give some idea of the intensity. Each time a spark landed on a wood-shingled roof, the building quickly ignited. By noon, every home on seven different streets were burned to the ground, along with the post office, Imperial Hotel, Anglican Church, and 15 stores. City Hall's eaves caught fire, and 30 minutes later, the building was gone. The Ottawa citizen later reported, For several hours, the fire demon cavorted, leaped, and cackled in its madness, and what previously had been the scene of bustling business activity and happy life was transformed into a desert of blackened ruins and abject misery. To combat the blaze, a steam fire engine named the Conqueror was put into action alongside one named La France. Before long, both were abandoned as the flames engulfed them. At first, every available man in the city was called to fight the fires, but before long, they realized their own homes and families were in danger, and they left. At 1 p.m., embers from the Hull Fire jumped across the Ottawa River and landed in the lumberyards of J.R. Booth and H.F. Bronson, 
two of the richest lumber tycoons in the city. Booth actually controlled large sections of timber land, which he claimed covered more land area than France. The fire had now reached the capital. An hour later in Ottawa, a flour mill, grain elevator, and both electrical plants were gone. Parliament was now in the dark, and the members of the House of Commons adjourned for the day. And the fire spread, with no end in sight. As Ottawa and Hull burned, a call was put out to Toronto, Brockville, Smith Falls, Peterborough, and Montreal for assistance. Montreal was the first to respond and immediately sent eight men and five horses. They arrived two hours later along with an engine and hose reel on the Canadian Atlantic Railway. A second pumper arrived later that evening. Meanwhile, the fire destroyed the Union Station and most of the Canadian Pacific Railway property. The wind carried embers up to two kilometers from the fire, and no place in the city was safe. Across Ottawa and Hull, people grabbed what they could from their homes and fled. Onlookers, they helped. One man described seeing pianos being pulled into plowed fields. And some pulled their possessions in a cart, but soon had to abandon them as the fire overtook them. And some took advantage of the chaos. The Ottawa citizen reported later that a group of, quote, brawling shantymen looted stores and went into hotels to grab as much liquor as they could, even as the building burned around them. It was estimated that it took an average of 10 minutes for a home to burn to the ground. Henry Stone of the Montreal Star wrote, With the most brilliant of blue skies as a background, and the varied tones of deep purple, blue and white smoke, to the denser black from the timber rising from the burning mass of hundreds of buildings and timber yards, covering two miles of ground and hurried across the sky with a gale of wind. Ottawa city leaders considered dynamiting houses in the fire's path to create a firebreak, but this was soon abandoned as falling debris from the explosions could cause the fire to spread even further. The blaze also threatened the Dominion Experimental Farm buildings on the south side of what is now Carling Avenue. Employees fought back valiantly and were able to save much of the property. On the east side of the city, a bucket brigade made up of three company militias slowed the spread. The Ottawa Journal wrote, Hour and hour these men worked like Trojans to save property and their success is well illustrated in the long line of small wooden houses, all the property of working men that remains on this and adjoining streets. A few days later, those men of the militia were given a banquet by grateful citizens. Frank Gadsby of the Parliamentary Press Gallery wrote, The most vivid picture of the fire is one seen at half past seven in the evening from Parliament Hill. The shades of night are falling, and a glorious sunset flame behind the purple mountains, but nature's splendor is eclipsed by the red hell that flares and flickers in the valley of the Ottawa. I note one roof after another twinkle, glow, and burst out in garish effulgence. As the sun set, both Hull and Ottawa fell into darkness with no electricity. Smoke drifted through the streets, eerily as people searched for their loved ones, worried they had succumbed to the flames. And by midnight, the wind shifted, helping the firefighting efforts, and the blaze was contained, and eventually snuffed out. In the end, most of Hull was destroyed, including 317 homes and 94 stores, as well as the courthouse, provincial bank buildings, and four mills. On 
On Chaudhary Island, which sits in the Ottawa River directly between Hull and Ottawa, only two stone buildings survived the fire. The island was where the fire jumped to from Hull on its move towards Ottawa. In Ottawa, most of the western side of the city was gone, amounting to 20% of the city from Le Breton Flats to Dow's Lake. It also lost two ironworks, two flour mills, the Ottawa Electric Railway Building and the Electric Lighting Company. But Ottawa was saved because of its higher elevation and the wind patterns of that day. The fire engulfed 276 acres in Hull and 440 acres in Ottawa. An estimated 100 million feet of lumber was also destroyed in the lumber yards. And the fire's destructive path had no rhyme or reason. Sometimes it spared one home only to destroy another nearby. Stone mansions were destroyed while small frame shacks survived. J.R. Booth's mansion worth $100,000 burned to the ground. He also lost five of his lumber yards. Only his sawmill was spared because his son Fred had installed a sprinkler system of his own design four years prior, and that system drenched the building inside and out, saving it. The CPR suffered as well, losing 175 freight cars with $80,000 in lost freight, $40,000 in lost buildings, and $130,000 in lost equipment. In Hull, the fire gutted the courthouse but didn't touch the jail next door. The Ottawa Journal wrote the day after the fire. Strangely enough, while there is scarcely a stick standing on the western side of Division Street except a few buildings at the extreme southerly end, there was nothing destroyed on the eastern side of the street south of Somerset. Division Street was a general dividing line on the east boundary of the fire district. In total, seven people died in the fire while 15,000 were left homeless, mostly in Hull. However, there are no records of how many were injured. Property losses were estimated at about $6.2 million in Ottawa and $3.3 million in Hull, with insurance only covering 50% of the damages in the capital and 23% in Hull. Adjusted for inflation, the damages amount to about $300 million today. And with so many people without homes, tent cities were set up but lacked sanitation resulting in disease. An unknown number of people died. The day after the fire, on April 27th, relief efforts began at 11 a.m., led by the Ottawa City Council. A general committee was established to address the needs of the fire victims. The committee was given the authority to spend as it needed to help. In Ottawa, several buildings were used as shelters, including the drill hall, exhibition grounds, and the Salvation Army barracks. In Hull, no public building survived. The Governor-General, Lord Minto, and his wife, the Countess of Minto, along with Lady Laurier, the wife of Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier, distributed food and clothing at the drill shed. At 8pm on April 27th, the General Relief Committee petitioned the Ontario Legislature to provide $100,000 in relief funds, which was approved. The bridge between Hull and Ottawa had been destroyed, so all supplies for Hull had to be sent over by steamer and barge. One clergyman in Hull stated that in three and a half weeks, he distributed food to 6,000 people. And Ottawa and Hull needed Canada's help. The Winnipeg Free Press ran the headline, He who gives, giveth twice. One department store put out an ad asking for donations for fire victims, stating, It behooves the wealthy and affluent to give not by a dollar where it should be ten, or five dollars where it should be fifty, or a hundred dollars where it should be a thousand, but according to the divining injunction, every man according to his means. The London Times attempted to get the British to help with funds, stating, 
Great Britain must help Canada, who is lavishing her blood and treasure in South Africa by contributing to the funds for the victims of the Ottawa fire. Aid poured in from across North America and England as well, amounting to $956,000 in total. Although more of Hull had been damaged, it only received a third of the donations, most of which came from fellow Canadians who donated $500,000. In the aftermath of so much loss, people looked for someone to blame. Some blamed lumbermen for lumber stockpiled in the city. Fred Perry, an inspector for the Royal Insurance Company in Montreal, had suggested that the lumber be moved out of the city a few years earlier. The Ottawa citizen stated, Mr. Perry had warned the city about the danger of the lumber piles. In a report to his company, he said that someday Ottawa would be visited by a destructive fire. It would start in Hull, cross the river, extend up Rochesterville, aided by the continuous piles of lumber, and if the wind was not in the right direction, the best part of the city would be swept away. The day after the fire, the Canadian Senate met and unanimously voted that the lumber piles were a menace to the capital and should be moved outside city limits. Parliament suggested that $100,000 in aid to Ottawa be contingent on the removal of the lumber. Fire Chief Peter Provost told Council on April 30th, The plain apparent causes of the spread of the fire were the lumber piles and wooden buildings within the city. The only voices in favor of leaving the lumber yards where they stood were the men who made money from them. Jackson Booth, the oldest son of J.R. Booth, said that the city shouldn't respond to the hysteria surrounding lumber piles in the city. He placed the blame for the fire on Hull. In the end, Ottawa City Council rejected moving the lumber yards because they provided a significant revenue for the city. Most of the lumber yards were in the Victoria Ward of Ottawa with 3,825 inhabitants, which generated an astonishing $4.4 million in tax revenue. The only recommendation made by City Council regarding lumber yards included reducing the amount allowed in each yard and increasing their space between yards and nearby buildings. The Council also rejected forcing construction of homes with fireproof materials. The fear was it would raise costs and anger the city. Alderman W.D. Morris stated it wasn't fair to force workers to build brick houses while lumbermen piled half a million feet of wood next to them. And as politicians bickered, Ottawa and Hull rebuilt. By the end of the year, 445 homes were erected and 29 more were in construction along with several shops, four hotels and a CPR station. And while the 1900 fire was the worst, it wasn't the last. Three years later, Ottawa was once again engulfed in flames. On May 11, 1903, lumber piles in the western limit caught fire and destroyed an area that had been destroyed in 1900. That fire left 300 people homeless and cost $600,000 in total damages. John Booth lost 18 million feet of lumber in that fire, amounting to $150,000. Once again, people told the city council to get rid of the lumber. This time, the city council listened. Eleven days after the fire, the city council passed a bylaw prohibiting the piling of lumber anywhere in the city and gave lumbermen six months to move the yards. But on June 27th, John Booth was allowed to speak out against the new bylaw. He managed to convince the committee to designate nine areas in the city for lumber yards with unlimited lumber as long as they were fenced in. Because, as we all know, fire can't burn fences.
1906, the last raft of timber was chuted down the river. Sawmills moved outside the city to be closer to the timber trade that was now farther away because by the turn of the 1910s, Ottawa's booming population had cleared most of the old-growth forest that had surrounded the city for centuries. And Ottawa didn't have any other major fires. But before I leave you there, there's one thing you should know about Christmas in 1900. Even though the fire happened in April, by Christmas many citizens were still dealing with the loss. The demand for help was too much for the churches and other charitable organizations to handle. To assist, the Ottawa Journal organized the first large-scale Christmas cheer campaign in the city. Pleading to their subscribers, they gathered money, toys, food, and clothes for distribution to those in need. One woman wrote, I have six small children who would be glad of anything. Another letter said, Hearing yesterday that you were giving to the poor for Christmas, there is a little boy who has no one to keep him, and he is in need. His mother is dead, and his father went away and left him three months ago, and there is no word from him. He has neither boots or clothes. The journal investigated each, and employees determined the age and number of children in each needing family, so each child would be granted a gift. Volunteers then assembled and delivered the parcels morning until night on Christmas Eve. In Hull, 52 parcels were distributed along with 380 in Ottawa. One delivery included clothing, toys, and candy to a house where two families lived, one with nine children and one with five. The journal wrote, The evidence of delight exhibited on the arrival of the gifts can be more easily imagined than described. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Hull Fire. Next week, we're looking at the Whiskey War. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Portage Power, Gatineau Valley Historical Society, Wikipedia, Ottawa Hall Fire of 1900 Report, Library and Archives Canada, City News, Lumber Piles Must Go, Montreal Star, Ottawa Journal, and the Ottawa Citizen. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.